This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Drink water from your own cistern flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. It was um, summer, July 2nd, to be exact, and uh, President James Garfield was walking uh, through... A, uh, a train station in Washington, D.C., and back in those days, uh, two things were different. Uh, one is that it was expected that the president take a month off in July because it got so hot and humid in Washington, D.C. with no air conditioning that they would go on vacation and they didn't even have cell phones, right? And they didn't have any way to get immediately in contact with them. And because the summer months were coming, he was heading to the train station, first to make a stop on his way on family vacation. He had two of his sons with him. He had two of his cabinet members. Two others were waiting where he was going to be at Williams College was that last stop that he was going to make. It was his alma mater, and he was uh, making uh, a speech. He was going to give a speech before he headed out on vacation. Um, Back in that, that morning's newspaper, his itinerary for the day was printed out, and Uh, Charles Godot, who was a crazy man who believed that God had told him to to assassinate James Garfield, was there waiting for him. And uh, the second thing that was different besides the expected month-long vacation of the president during the summer months was the fact that except for Abraham Lincoln and only during uh, the Civil War when he would go out into the battlefield, presidents didn't have security detail. So James Garfield was just walking through the train station with his two sons, and the people had the decency to to stay back and understand that uh, he was the president, and uh, he was going somewhere, and he's on business, so they didn't need to interrupt him. Except uh, this uh, Charles Godot steps up behind him at point-blank range and uh, fires a gun. And the first shot grazed his left shoulder, and then uh, he fired again, and it entered into his low back, missing his spinal column, and then the bullet coming to rest right behind his pancreas. And that dropped him to the ground. Uh, and uh, Godot put the gun in his pocket, turned around, and was walking out of the train station when a police officer bumped into him uh, as he was coming in, hearing the gunfire, and he arrested him. Was so excited about arresting him, forgot to take the gun, interestingly enough, until they got to the police station. But it's okay, nothing else happened. 
just an interesting fact. So uh, here he is, James Garfield on the ground, and there was a physician who was there uh, waiting for a train, and he ran up to James Garfield, who's waiting on the ground, and uh, he did the, something unimaginable. Uh, he, he laid him, kept him laying uh, on this dirty floor, and then uh, stuck his bare finger into the, the wound, uh, trying to find the bullet, thinking, I need to get the bullet out in order for him to be able to live. Of course, he couldn't find the bullet. It was way, way too far in. And he did it a few times, uh, finally stopped, and uh, they took him to his residence. They took James Garfield to his residence, where he didn't die until 11 weeks later. You see, he didn't die from the gunshot wound. He died from the continual probing uh, of unsanitized both fingers and other instruments, trying to find this bullet uh, into him. And he, he died, and in the autopsy, his body was just filled with infection. And that was surprising because uh, the theory of the day of the way disease or illness was transmitted was called the miasma theory. Uh, It's a Greek word for pollution. In other words, people believed that sickness was transmitted through bad air. There were clouds of bad air that were following you or were around. And if you walked through a cloud of bad air, you would get sick. Well, about this time, uh, from Europe comes this idea of what we now know as the germ theory. Uh, but it was rejected uh, vehemently. It was starting to make some headways with younger physicians uh, who, who believed that there might actually be these invisible microorganisms that cause illness. But it was, it was crazy to these uh, tenured physicians who were treating James Garfield. You see, uh, the idea was they wanted to save him. Right? They wanted to save him, but you had two competing theories of how to save him. One was this idea of keeping the air clean and getting the bullet out, or the miasma theory. And the other one was uh, to, to make sure that the wound was, was clean and to make sure that, uh, that they stopped introducing these foreign microorganisms into his body. And you had these competing theories. So it was the same goal, different strategies. You see, and we live our life living in a world where many of us have the same goals but competing theories of how to reach that goal, competing strategies. And we're so deeply ingrained in our own theories and strategies of what would bring us happiness, which could be a goal, or flourishing, that we fight against any other theory that might be true, any other theory that cuts at what we think deeply is true. And one of the main goals of our culture of our society around us, and not just ours, but definitely ours, is to find freedom, is to find our identity. And one of the primary theories of how we find our identity in our culture is sexual expression, right? Even the sermon series, The Liberated Life, we're making an argument that God's word leads us into the liberated life, that his commandments would guide us and direct us. That's our theory, that's our operating commitment. But especially when it comes to sexuality and sex, the Bible is seen as a repressive theory to discovering who we are. The Bible is seen not as liberation, but as repression. But I think that as we meditate, as we think about, as we engage each other on what the Bible teaches about sexuality and how it feeds into our identity, I think that we'll come to see that actually freedom really is found in the teaching of the Bible and not an unmitigated freedom of sexual expression, which is the theory of our culture. But you see, we, we have the same strategy. I mean, the same goal. The same goal is flourishing. 
the same goal as happiness. We have completely different strategies of how to get there. So this morning, uh, I, I want us to talk about sexuality. And of course, it's in the context, uh, uh, in this case, adultery. Now, adultery, uh, also this commandment has ramifications on things like fornication. That would be sexual activity outside of marriage. But today, because this is the commandment, my focus will be mainly on uh, marriage and, and sex in marriage. All right. Now, we sent out an email saying this was going to be PG-13. I, I promise you the text itself, I think, is PG-13, and I don't plan on going much farther than the text. The text is pretty explicit, right? Uh, and we'll come back to it. Um, but I just want to give you a heads up just in case you didn't get that email so you can uh, get in the right mental space. We're talking about sex, okay? Got it? All right. Good. So I want to do, I want to walk through uh, three observations. Uh, the first is obvious, okay? And that's this, the context for sex, right? It's marriage. So the first point is the context for sex. Christianity gets a bad rep. rap. I mean, our reputation on sex is, tends to be very repressive, right? We, uh, at least in the past, it has been. Even the word, uh, a puritanical view of sex, even non-Christians will use that word. Uh, and, and they're tying it to, uh, of course, the Puritan movement. They're misusing it. I mean, after all, uh, in the 1950s, Yale Press uh, refused to publish sermons about sex uh, by the Puritans because they were too racy for the 1950s, right? So uh, the, the Puritans uh, weren't against sex, okay? The church, if you read Proverbs 5 and Song of Solomon and, and other things, we understand that sex is to be valued and is to be embraced, but in the proper context, right? The context of sex or for sex is marriage between one man and one woman. Now saying that used to be uh, seen as repressive, but now it might even be seen as dangerous to say something like that. That that's dangerous for me to make that claim. But it clearly is what the Bible teaches, right? The text is clear that sex and marriage is to be a beautiful thing. It's expected. So it's not repressive. It's actually freedom in the right context, right? It's both the right goal and the right strategy. The goal of being fulfilled, the goal of having intimacy, and then the correct strategy being marriage. Let's read this text again, right? Let's read verses 17 through 19. And I'm not sure how we can read this, these verses, and not think that sex is a good thing in the context of marriage. So starting in verse 17, let them, he's talking about his, uh, the sexual desires between a husband and wife, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated. This word also, if you're in your Bible, the ESV footnote says, be led astray. That's interesting, isn't it? Tox intoxication can be a good thing in the scriptures, but in the right context, it can be, uh, the wrong context, it can be a bad thing. But in this case, it's a good thing, meaning that you're so wrapped up in your wife's or your spouse's sexual desire and your sexual desire that you almost lose your way, that you're intoxicated with it. I don't know how that's repressive at all. In fact, some of you are uneasy right now. Verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And we'll come back to that later. 
my point is, is uh, sex is seen as a beautiful thing, as a, as a crucial thing in the right context. So we first have to start there. Before, before we get into the rest of the sermon, we have to talk about the fact that sex is good in the context of marriage. But to be fair, I understand why some of us don't experience it this way, both in this room and outside of this room. I understand that some of us have gotten to the place, even married people have gotten to the place where we read this and it seems like a fairy tale. We read this and, seem, and say, I've never experienced sex this way. I mean, I, I think I love my spouse, but I've never experienced this. I don't feel like, whether you're a man or a woman, you may feel like, I don't feel like I can actually be loved and engaged and embraced in this type of language. I don't know how to go there. It seems like a fairy tale. It seems awkward. It seems uh, like, like a movie, something that's not real. And I understand how we've gotten there. And the bulk of my sermon this morning will be about that. And so that's the second observation I wanna make. And this second observation is the longest one. And that is, how did we get there? How did we get to a place to where this seems so distant or so infrequent to us in married sex? And, and this is the thing, the second point. Uh, we've forgotten the point of sex and we have failed to fight the perversion of sex. All right, so the point and perversion of sex. Last week, I started the sermon talking about basketball, the game of basketball, saying that you don't even have to know anything about basketball to know that there's an out-of-bounds line and that all of the game has to take place in, on the court. You can't go out of bounds, right? But we also said that the point of the game is not keeping the ball in bounds. Like, you're not a good basketball team simply by keeping the ball in bounds. You realize the point is to score a basket. And when you have to keep the ball in bounds and follow other uh, rules as well, it makes you really creative and it, it makes beautiful things happen and it creates team chemistry and all types of things. And I said oftentimes when we read the commandments, we read them as though they are only out of bounds lines and the point is to keep the ball in bounds. But it's not. Like last week we said that do not murder that if we just think the commandment should tell us not to give our neighbor the worst, like don't kill them, don't hold grudges, don't hate them, that somehow that's godliness, that's insane. We're missing the point. That would be like an ESPN announcer going on and on and on about how amazing this team is by the fact that they kept the ball in bounds. It'd be insane. We wouldn't get it. But in fact, we see that in order to understand the positive, we do have to understand the negative of a command, but the point is to pursue the positive. So this week, the point of sex in marriage, the point of the seventh commandment is not simply to not have sex outside of marriage. That's the out of bounds line, okay? So if you don't do that, it doesn't mean you have a good marriage. If you keep this commandment in the out of bounds line, your marriage can still be really bad, Okay? Your sex life in your marriage can still be really bad. And Jesus tells us that it's also the root of adultery is fantasy. It's creating an object of your own fantasy, making another human being an object, 
lusting after them, undressing them with your eyes, or imagining romantic dinners and getaways in your mind. That's fantasy. And even keeping yourself from doing that doesn't mean that you're going to have a good marriage, you see. You can stay in bounds and still not get the point of the seventh commandment. So here is the point of sex and the seventh commandment. The point of sex is deep oneness. It's unity in every single part of who you are. Sex in marriage is to pursue oneness and communion with your spouse. So the point of sex is deep intimacy and oneness. Now here's the thing. You cannot experience this with others outside this commitment. Okay? In order to truly experience sex as a whole person, emotionally, physically, to bring your vulnerability to be completely known and accepted, right? Sometimes it's easier to be known without your clothes on, but to hide your deepest longings and desires and insecurities. Sometimes it's easier to give yourself physically than it is to give yourself into vulnerability. But sex and marriage, if we're pursuing it as it's designed, it must equal both. Some of us view sex as this, uh, I've heard it put as a, as a triangle. We sort of view uh, the base of the triangle as sex, and then the point of sex the tip of the triangle leading you to connection or intimacy. But in fact, that's inverted. The base of a relationship, the base uh, leading to sex has to be connection. It has to be oneness in, in all of who you are. So the point of sex is deep intimacy and oneness. It's a unitive act. Now, if this is true, which it is, we have to understand that we're built to have sex in an environment of total safety and commitment, total safety and commitment. And this is why sex is God's way of softening you to the other person. You know what it's like when you actually come to someone, anyone, and you bear to them your deepest longings and insecurities. And you do it in a way where you don't, may not even know, you can't even put the words together, but you do it in such a way where they see it and they name it for you. You, you know how vulnerable that is. And I hope you've experienced that because some of the deepest human connection happens right there where you don't just tell people details of your story. Many of us think we're being vulnerable, but we're not. All we're doing is telling people the details of your story, right? I can, this didn't happen to me, but someone, I could tell you if it were true, this isn't true about me, but I could say my, uh, I was beaten as a child. I was sexually molested as a child and I am not being vulnerable. I'm giving you the illusion of vulnerability but I'm not telling you how that affected me. I'm not taking you to my emotion. I'm not telling you what I desire now because of that. And many of us, we, we, we've never been taught how to be truly vulnerable. We've never been, we've never been modeled for us. And so, therefore, we're, we can't engage in this base of the triangle of true unity. And we have to have a committed place to do this in. We have to have a committed relationship to do this in. That's why marriage is the context for this. I mean, can you imagine? This is why adultery is so difficult. Because if you give yourself to someone, if you, if you open yourself up to vulnerability, this act is meant to soften you to the other person. It's meant, you know how soft you feel when you're open. You feel vulnerable. And then to have someone then receive that or take that and then go somewhere else. 
It's crushing. And this is why all of us who engage in sexual activity before marriage or outside of marriage, this is why we're hardened oftentimes to sex, even in marriage, is because we engage in this thing that was meant to soften us, but we weren't in the right context. And when we weren't in the right context, in order to protect ourselves, we had to harden ourselves. We kept engaging in it, but we had to harden ourselves because we couldn't give ourselves fully. We couldn't give ourselves fully because can you imagine you gave yourself physically for one night to this person, but then the next day they could just go off and do it with someone else. And so it's meant to soften you, but if you engage in it as it's designed and you begin to get softened, you feel crushed and you feel shame and you feel emptiness. And so you shut that off. So then we come into marriage. We're in now this safe context, but we've spent so long hardening ourselves. It doesn't just happen. It's not just you get married and then you can engage in the softening uh, unitive act in marriage. It takes commitment. It, that's why all these books are written on marriage. It's not easy. There's a counterformation that must happen. So if you use it outside of marriage, you'll have to harden yourself and you'll have to use it in the exact opposite way that it was designed for. Because sex is designed to celebrate the union that there is in marriage and to continually soften you in that union as you engage in sex. And it's to get you to trust more and more deeply. But sex outside of marriage trains you not to trust. You know, we tend to think of adultery that it happens when someone decides to simply go out and find someone who's hotter, find someone who's more exciting. But most of the time, that's not actually what happens. Most of the time, what happens is that a spouse uh, is not being known, uh, isn't getting an emotional need understood and met, and there's not true connection. And so what happens is uh, that hardening over time doesn't get rid of the need that you have. And you may be at work one day or at the gym one day, and uh, someone notices uh, how hard you're working. Maybe not in the gym, but maybe it's at work. And man, you, you really sacrificed. You, you really uh, uh, showed your commitment to the, to the team. And it's a member, it's a person of the opposite sex, and it feels really good. And you feel loved, you feel accepted in that moment. And your response then, because it feels so good and the craving is so deep, is to give them part of you. It's to be vulnerable with them, to tell them, yeah, I know, this is how hard it was, and go on and on. And your spouse at home, you're not having that type of interaction. And so what actually happens is you've just created a secret with this person. And here's a definition of intimacy, and it's that intimacy is simply secret-making. When you make a secret with someone and you hide it from your spouse, it seems so innocent, but it's actually intimate. You've created in the seemingly innocent moment an intimate moment. And that's a step. And then you continue going back to that person because you feel valued by your efforts and working hard. You feel encouraged even in your failures. Uh, you're told you're valuable and beautiful inside and out. And you're craving this so much that it grabs hold of your heart and your imagination. And sex is just the end of that connection. If it just keeps happening and keeps happening and keeps happening 
and you have this intimate connection with the opposite sex, sex, I don't mean to say that you just trip and fall into it, but I mean to say that you got on the highway already. You got on the highway and you just kept driving and you passed this exit and this exit and this exit and this exit and then you're there. That's more often than not how adultery happens. So the point of sex is a unitive act. It is to bring communion with another person. Now, if that is the point, what is the perversion of sex? And here's the perversion of sex. The perversion of sex is that rather than communion through sex, we consume through sex. So we don't use sex to commune, we use it to consume. This is what Jesus is getting at. When you look at another person and you consume them with your eyes and with your mind, you're perverting sex. Sex becomes about taking, becomes about consuming. It's shallow, it's misused. Remember, again, when the purpose of sex is to soften you and you enter into sex to take, it will destroy you and it will destroy the other person. Because sex stops becoming about connection and it starts becoming about taking. Sex, when fully engaged in, is to see that you're naked and unashamed and acceptable and enjoyed, not simply a product to be consumed. Now, it's important, it's important to say this, that the commandment at this point would teach us that we can be engaging in sex, in marriage, and still do this. That's the perversion. It's like a parasite. We've been trained, to use the word from the Proverbs, we've been trained to consume sexually. It's marketing. I mean, we've been trained to do this. We've been trained to view sex a certain way. We've been trained to consume. Sex is about you, right? I mean, I know they're easy to make fun of. It's an easy boogeyman, but the, the magazines, uh, when you check out, uh, most of the time going for women, but also for men in different fitness magazines, it's, you know, how to get the other person uh, the best orgasm. It's about presenting yourself as a product. It's about being consumed as a product. It's about making yourself valuable as a product, right? Are you, are you as good as the newest model? And if we view sex this way in marriage, we will destroy our marriage. Or if we don't destroy it, it'll at least plateau very low and just stay there at best, right? We might keep the ball in bounds. Good for you. Good for me. We might keep the ball in bounds, but we completely missed the point. The purpose of sex is intimacy. It's connection. That's why you can be intoxicated by it because it's more than just physical. It's not less than, but it's more than just physical. You know, um, probably about two or three years ago, um, it was about the time we moved here, I, I, I sort of recommitted myself in a way. And I don't know if that's even the right way to say it now that I said it out loud. It, it's more like it, there was a realization that I needed to pray for more for intimacy in our marriage. And the more I prayed for intimacy in our marriage, 
the more uh, I saw myself pursuing Leah, my wife, pursuing her, not sexually even, just to pursue her heart, to pursue her and to tell her and show her and then view her as increasingly beautiful to me as my wife and as a mother and as a friend. And I found myself not even planning, but as I engaged regularly in these prayers and in this praying, I started praying for our sex life. And I promise I won't go any farther than saying that. But I found myself, interestingly, like, even as I was praying, thought, why am I praying for this? And this is why. Because God was answering my prayers of intimacy. God was answering my prayers of, of deepness and oneness emotionally in our relationship. And the Holy Spirit just naturally led me to the place of, oh yeah, and then this is the ultimate pointer to this unitive act. And I understood it uh, at a level that I never understood it before. Now, we're fighting against a lot in our culture that's training us continually, like I said, to consume. And I know there's a spectrum, but I want to share this example from you from the scriptures about a a horrible example of what consumption looks like and what it does to a person. Uh, There in 2 Samuel 13, uh, Amnon, the son of David, has his half-sister Tamar come into his room. He pretends like he's sick and he invites her in because he sees her and he desires her. Okay, this is a consumptive desire, clearly. You just read the text, it's obvious. This is a consumptive desire. He invites her in, he tries to get her into his bed, and she, re- she refuses. She says, no, this is not right, this is not good. Well, it says in the text that he was stronger than her, so then he gets her into the bed. And after he's finished consuming her, this is what the text says. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. You see, in that moment, he felt such shame that he couldn't even look at her. He felt such shame in his consumption. It, was, it felt so empty, so shallow to him that he had to lash out at her in contempt and no doubt against himself. And so we have to fight against this perversion of sex, which is to take. And let me, let me tell you this. Um, the whole premise of, of consumption and taking is to find value. It's to go find your value somewhere, right? If I'm not fulfilled, I gotta go find my value. And all of our value and identity comes from outside of us. We don't give ourselves our own identity, which is why you seek it in the wrong places of approval, power, comfort, and control. But ultimately, sex is in the context of marriage, and marriage in the Bible clearly is a picture of Christ and his church. You see, faithfulness in marriage points to God's faithfulness to us. And if I don't lean into my marriage in a place where my full identity and full vulnerability and full desire is met in Jesus I will have to go to my spouse and take. I'll have nothing to give. I will only have need. But if I I find my identity in Jesus, if I'm rooted in the vulnerability with him, if I come to him and tell him my story and, and tell him my desires and tell him what I need and let him meet me there, 
then I, I will have experienced this nakedness and unashamedness in, in a relationship that no matter what I do, he will not forsake me. He will not forsake you. He is not an adulterer. He shows us the perfect relationship. Your spouse will let you down, but Jesus won't. So the point of marriage is complete oneness, allegiance, affection, and commitment. And the only way we can know what that is is to find our identity in Jesus, to submit to him. And so I'll say, married or non-married, if any of us go into a relationship to take, we will destroy ourselves and the other person, especially when we go to take sexually and to consume instead of commune. Now I wanna close with this. No doubt, many of us in this room find ourselves in some place of struggle with sexual sin. And you might be in a season where it's not so much. You might be in a season where it's a lot. Many of us are there. And uh, I want us to look at verse 20 here in Proverbs 5 for hope. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The very fact that he asks this like a question, it is a question, not like a question, it shows us that we don't have to do this. That's why he's asking the question. It doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to find yourself wooed by the forbidden woman or person, right? Just because the author uses this example, it's a literary function called concreteness, meaning that he's using a specific example and then as the reader reads and meditates, we understand the principles and it can apply them to other places. So this clearly is about sexual sin in general, not just between uh, a woman wooing a man. It can also be the opposite way. It can be uh, pornography. It can be uh, homosexuality. It can be all types of sexual struggle. Okay, so this is all encompassing here. And he gives us hope by asking the question, why should you be intoxicated by the forbidden? Let's just say that. Titus. Paul wrote a letter to Titus. And uh, he told Titus this. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now I wanna put these two things together. Here, the father in Proverbs asks the question, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with forbidden women or the forbidden? Verse 22, I mean verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. This word for path is a rut. Think like on a dirt road and there's a rut and if you have a wagon or a car and your tire just keeps going into the path. So he tells him, you need to ponder the paths of the Lord. And as you ponder the paths of the Lord, it will create these ruts that you will find yourself falling into. But we, we have to have that with Titus. And this is what Titus says. Titus says that it is the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness. It's not willpower alone. It's the grace of God. What is the grace of God? The grace of God is that in Jesus Christ, God came to you 
in who you are, without your earning, without anything. And he said, I know every part of you. You are naked and exposed before me. I know all of your wicked desires. I know all of your unmet desires. I know all of your adulterous acting and thinking against me. I know all of that. And I want you. I love you. I will not break this covenant. I will keep pursuing you. I, I have you. I am faithful to you. And that grace, finding ourselves in that path of grace, of grace, of grace, will train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions because we begin to become the type of people who love the right things. Our hope in the grace of God is not simply forgiveness, although that is glorious, but it's also transformation. So I will leave you with this. The only way you'll be transformed in marriage, in the sexual sin, but any sin, is to be naked and vulnerable in the right context. And the first one is with the Lord. When is the last time that you stopped hiding, that you came into the light in any sin, When's the last time you went to a friend that you could trust and told them, confessed to them your sin? Listen, with the danger of being too hyperbolic, I'll tell you, you have no chance. You have no chance of unsnaring yourself from any sin without confession. In that vulnerability, in that softness, the Lord will teach you to trust again. When you're received for who you are, and in that vulnerability, it's matched with love and truth, it will soften you and teach you to trust again. And when you can trust again, you can trust the Lord more fully. And that cycle continues. And you continue to be softened and trust and then renounce ungodliness, and then soften and trust in confession, then announce ungodliness. And you'll grow in connection and intimacy. And so the seventh commandment is not about simply not committing adultery. It's about the unitive act of vulnerability in marriage that points us to our relationship with God in his grace and his complete acceptance of us so that we can go back into the world in order to give and not simply to take. Let's pray together. Father, <clears throat> we come to you now um, at no doubt uh, varying levels of concern, uh, confusion, uh, rejoicing, lamenting, grieving, Guilt, shame, all of these things. But now we, we pause and we bring all those things to you, Lord Jesus, and we bring them to the light. We bring them to you and we know that you already know them. And we want to look you in, in the eye, behold you in our mind's eye, in our heart's eye, and we want to be vulnerable with you. We want to confess to you the darkness, the way we've lived in the darkness. And maybe even this morning, ways that we had pushed down so deep rose to the surface and we need to bring that to you so that we can be healed. We pray for wisdom uh, 
to know how to engage in vulnerability and trust with our spouses and how we uh, might need one another in order to do that. I pray for uh, everyone here that uh, my words uh, would not have been received as too harsh or, or anything like that because of, of an area in life that could be so soft. My desire, Holy Spirit, is for all of us to experience more union with you and in our relationships, that we would experience your love more deeply and more fully. In Jesus' name, amen.